Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Photography. I'm Lorena Turner. Today I'm talking with Carl Baden. His new book, The Americans by Car, was published by Retroactive Press in June of 2016. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. I'm happy to be here, Lorena. I'm happy to have you. Could you start by talking a little bit about your book, The Americans by Car? Okay, well, um, it is a conceptual book of uh, photographs. Well, the book, isn't, the book itself is not conceptual, but it has a conceptual, conceptual framework. Um, and how it started was actually through another body of work, a more recent body of work that um, I had been doing on the streets uh, for the past three summers. And I had gotten it to a point where I thought I could get a book out of it, and I still think I can get a book out of it, but um, I was really running into a wall in terms of the sequencing. So um, one thing that you that you might want to know about me is that in, in the projects I've done over the years, th- there's always been um, a time when I have gone back in the history of photography and referenced it somehow in my work. And I've done at least four uh, projects, you know, between, when was the first one, say 1980 and now that have specifically had to do with the history of photography. And so in the back of my mind, I had had this idea of, working with Robert Frank's book, The Americans, which was, you know, originally published in France in 1957 because he couldn't get a publisher to take it on until um, Grove Press, which was the, you know, the Beatnik Press, the they published the, the Beat Poets, uh, actually published the first American edition in 1958. Um, it's, it's a book that I grew up on photographically and people of my generation and before um, basically saw this book as the main, uh, the main influence in photography. And you can, I I would say that pretty much without argument, uh, Robert Frank's the Americans, um, is the most influential photography book and the work in it, the most influential work of the second half of the 20th century. And so, uh, it was extremely important to me learning about photography and becoming a photographer. And it was a book that I didn't take to immediately. Uh, the pictures were, it was not like looking at Ansel Adams work or Edward Weston's work where you can, you can see the beauty right up front. It was something that, um, 
that you really had to look at and it it uh it had to grow on you puts me in mind of this thing that that um the artist ed ruche said um he said most people make work that when you look at it you say wow and then you say huh and he said but i like to make work then what that when you look at it people say huh and then wow and um that's what the americans was for me it was it was the latter and so in um in the mid 2000s i had start started photographing more from my car i would stop places and use the the windows and the uh door frames and the rear view mirror and the sun visors, you know, all as formal components, um, making a delineation between inside and outside. And I certainly was not the first to do this, but I tend to photograph pretty much everywhere I go and I always carry a camera. And so working from the car was just a, a natural evolution from, you know, not being in the car, walking down the street or being in the house or being, you know, at a museum or someplace else, um, I, I would, I would still use the camera. I, I remember in about 2012, I was driving in Boston and I'm, I made a picture and, you know, when you're, when you're photographing in these situations, everything happens very quickly and you, you don't have time to analyze or even Sometimes you don't even have time to see the picture when you take it. But um, I, I was looking at it later, and it reminded me of the cover picture from the Americans. And uh, that's the picture of the trolley in New Orleans. And um, so it was something that started to grow uh, as an idea in the back of my head. And I was like I said, I was working on some other things. So, uh, I, you know, I, I sort of said, well, you know, if I can get to it, I'll get to it. And then I ran into this block, uh, this sort of artist block. And I said, well, why don't I go back to this idea about the Americans? Because my problem here with the first body of work is sequencing. And if I do the Americans book, it's already pre-sequenced. So that problem is completely eliminated. And so what I did was, um, you know, when it comes down to it, and I say that the book is conceptual, the concept is about influence. Mm -hmm. And really in its largest sense. So I used myself as a kind of every person example or every man, as they used to say, um, every man photographer. Um, and I decided that I wouldn't make any new pictures, although I did cheat on that with one or two pictures. But for the most part, I would look back into my archive and try and find a photograph that somehow resonated with another photograph that was in the Americans. And I would try to do that with every photograph that was in the Americans. So um, 
you know, it took two or three months of pouring through pictures back down in the vault. And uh, I finally managed to come up with 83 pictures that, to a greater or lesser degree, to me, had some connection to the Americans. Uh, and that's the number of pictures that are in the Americans. And so I set them up in the same sequence as the Americans. So if you look through the Americans by car, which also, um, I'll digress for a second here, is a reference to Lee Friedlander's more, much more recent book called America by car, mm -hmm. which I think is, um, you know, I, I, have always Friedlander. I've always seen Friedlander as an important photographer, but, um, the Americans by car, I think is a really important book. I mean, it's, it's not important in the sense that the Americans was important. It, it, it's, it's not a game changer, but it is an example of, um, I don't know if you've ever looked through it, but it is in the photographs and in the layout. Um, it is an example of really a master at the height of his powers, um, showing us how brilliant a photograph can be. And, um, and, and really a, a book because Friedlander now, uh, I've read considers himself first and foremost to be a book artist. Um, and he, you know, he puts out a number of books a year, but anyway, so I found, you know, 83 photographs that seem to correspond with each of the 83 photographs in the Americans. I, you know, they were all taken from, from my car. Um, there are a few that if, if, if they weren't taken directly from the car, um, the, the notion of the automobile is, um, a major part of the photograph. So I sequenced them. Uh, I put, uh, my version of an introduction by Jack Kerouac because the original had an introduction by Jack Kerouac. Mm -hmm. I tried to keep the typeface um, referential to the Americans and the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the way the book was laid out. In other words, very simply one picture per page spread. Mm -hmm. And, um, so in some ways it is just like the Americans and in some ways it refers to the Americans and in some ways it is mine, but that is how the book evolved. And, um, you know, it was, it was tough to find the pictures and I, I, I feel like I had to sacrifice in some cases picture quality to get the um to get the the reference and and the resonance but you know there there are enough good pictures in there that um that I stand by it and um uh, I'm uh, I'm certainly happy with it we're going to talk about the book 
specifically in a few minutes. Talk a little bit about your experience and your history as a photography. How long have you been working in photography? Um, give us a little context of okay. your relationship to it. I first picked up a camera in earnest, I guess you would say, in late 1971 when I was a sophomore in college. And the reason that I did was to impress a girlfriend who I was enamored of, and I couldn't see what, what she saw um, in, um, you know, a, a, a jerk like me, and so I felt like I had to do something. I remember hitchhiking home to my parents' house from college and on, my, uh, on Thanksgiving of my sophomore year, and my dad who was a high school teacher, um, he had start, started, you know, photography as a hobbyist several years earlier, and he built a darkroom in the basement, and he had just graduated to um, a Nikon, which was, um, you know, very special in those days, a Nikon F. So, so he, let, he lent me his, um, his old Mamaya 35-millimeter camera, and I went back to college, and voila, I was a photographer. Wow. And, um, the relationship lasted about nine months, and um, but by that time, photography had taken hold of me. The interesting thing is that um, the old girlfriend is, became a photographer as well. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's when I started. And actually, the, the next year, I took a semester off and went, actually hitchhiked from upstate New York to California and then down to the U.S.-Mexican border. And then with buses and planes, uh, went through Mexico and into Peru. And that's where I really started photographing seriously. Um, so when I came back to school, I switched my major from anthropology. Um, it was my childhood dream to become an archeologist. And, uh, so I enrolled as an anthropology major. So I switched my major from anthropology to, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to be in a, a special program in the school where I could design my own major. So, I was essentially a studio arts major, but um, uh, I, I, I could pick the courses that I wanted um, with with more freedom than um, the average student. So, uh, you know, I concentrated on photography, and um, it just so happened that while I was there, and this was in Syracuse, New York, mm -hmm. uh, there was um, a little dark room, rental dark room that started up at the school and it was called the community dark rooms. And, um, I joined so I could use a dark room outside the classroom in maybe 1973 and the community dark rooms, which actually still exists, but it became a nonprofit organization called Lightwork. So I, I was one of the you know, first five or six people involved in light work. And I think that, um, 
that light work uh, was probably the most important educational experience that I had in photography. I mean, I've actually only taken maybe two or three formal photography classes in my life. And um, everything else was really like it was either a seminar or or something else entirely. And, you know, the, the things that were happening at Lightwork at the time um, and the freedom that I was given to do what I wanted there as opposed to school where I had to, you know, fulfill an assignment or, you know, do something that I didn't want it was was. It was more. It was more valuable to me than any. Certainly, any photography class that I took as an undergraduate, and at least as valuable as anything that I did in graduate school. And I and I think that you know it's still around. It's become, um, you know, it's a terrific organization. I mean, it's at a time when many nonprofit organizations are hanging on by their fingernails because of budget cuts, you know, which, which I think started in the culture wars of the 1990s with Jesse Helms and that sort of thing. Um, light work has grown and, um, you know, it's, it's mission, uh, with its artists in residence program and its publishing program is terrific. And I have nothing but great things to say about it. Where did you go to graduate school? I went to graduate school at um, the University of Illinois in Chicago. Uh, in fact, it was the only place that I applied. And the reason was that um, while I was at Lightwork, um, you know, in the, I mean, I left Syracuse to go to school in 1977. And so, uh, while I was there, they established an artist in residence program. And the first artist in residence was this guy from Chicago named Joseph Jockna. And Joe was one of the first generation of students of Callahan's and, um, Siskins at the Institute of Design in Chicago. So, he was a contemporary and a, um, a classmate of uh, Ken Josephson and Barbara Crane and um, Ray Metzger, Art Sinzabaugh, you know, all those people. Um, he, w- he was one of them. And we, I, I remember the first day um, he came to Lightwork, I was flattening some prints on the dry mounting press. And, you know, the directors of Lightwork were showing him around and he passed me doing this and they, they introduced him to me and we said hi. And um, I, I had known who he was because he had just um, – uh, w- one of the things that, I, that was important to me when I was uh, in college in terms of photography was the Time Life series of books mm-hmm. of photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they had just come out. And, um, so I was just, you know, they, they were the most accessible things and I was gobbling them up and, and he had, um, 
uh, a big spread in one of them. So I had just found out who he was, but you know, he, he saw a print of mine at the top of the pile. And he said, and the first thing he said was, Hey, I'll trade you for that. And you know, that kind of affirmation, I mean, so we started talking and, um, he said, you know, we're starting a graduate program where I teach and um, I would really encourage you to apply. And, you know, this was my senior year in college. And I had, you know, in those days, uh, um, well, it turns out that most of my my friends became attorneys. But, um, you know, at the time, we all thought we'd be living on commune someplace and, you know, getting milk from goats and that sort of thing. But, um you know, I had, I had no plans really. Uh, and so I applied and I got in and, um, uh, it was, it was, it was a great experience. I mean, I, I think that light work was more important, but Chicago, um, was, and I think still is a terrific town. Um, there was a lot, you know, it, it had its own, it has its own aesthetic in not only in terms of photography, it's very important in terms of the history of photography in the 20th century, because that's where Maholi Naj established the Bauhaus mm-hmm. when he fled Germany. Um, and the Bauhaus was the thing that eventually, you know, that was the Institute of Design. So, um, but also in terms of painting and sculpture, it's it's um, it's a certainly a, 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 I would say it's a more important town than, than a place like Boston. But um, and it was just a, a great you know it was open later. The public transportation was better. It ran later. It had some crazy places. Uh, I'm a big blues fan, so um, it was a great place to be for two years. Was that the first year that the program started? No, it was the, it was the second, second year. year. They were trying to accept to be very selective, and that year they accepted three students for photography. And who were your classmates? And my classmates, the two the two people that they accepted were um, uh, Ben Sorreo, I remember, um, who uh, had just won um, the Chicago art award the year previously. And he was an installation and performance artist, um, who also worked with photography. And, um, you know, I've lost contact with him the past couple of years, but, um, I know that he was an artist in residence, I think for NASA. And, um, you know, he was still, he was still doing what he was doing. And then there was another, another guy named, um, R.D. Doherty. And, um, he, he also did, um, photographically based installation work and, um, I don't know what's happened with him, but, um, you know, uh, since then, um, there have been a number of people who have, have gone through who, you know, have done well, who are teaching, you know, one comes to mind right away is Doug Ishar, um, um, who stayed in Chicago and I think actually teaches there or maybe teaches at the art Institute. I don't know, but, um, Joe was a, a real big influence for me. And also there was a woman, uh, named Esther Parada, um, who was not on the graduate faculty at the time, but, um, 
we became friends quickly and um she was also uh, a big influence she she was an undergraduate teacher but uh became uh graduate faculty right after i left and um sadly neither of them are around anymore but um the faculty there right now is 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 pretty good um uh gary minix teaches there and i have enormous respect for his work and um uh, uh, I can't think right now, but um, I'm glad I went there. That's yeah. all I can say. I, I I always think of um I think of graduate school as a bit like, you know, it's it's two years of your life. I mean, graduate school for photography. Let's yeah. specifically. So it's two two years of your life, or maybe for some people like me, two and a half years um, of your life that you get this, you know, incredible time to focus on your work and your ideas and uh, developing yourself. And, but then you never quite leave that, you know, it's always a part of you. And it's almost like you, you know, depending on, um, you know, it doesn't really matter how the program changes, um, you know, after you leave, but you've, you've kind of bought stock in that department and in that, um, in that university. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel, I feel that way more, I think about light work than I do about, um, um, circle. Uh, that was the short name for it. Um, university of Illinois at Chicago circle. Uh, so we called it circle. So, um, but, um, you know, as, as a teacher and also just as a photographer, you know, in the area, I mean, people, all the time people ask me about grad school students do Mm. people who are a little bit out of school. And my feeling is that, uh, yes, you get more time to do your work. You get two or three years, um, presumably uninterrupted to do your work and to mature. And, um, uh, that does happen, I think, in most cases, but I think more realistically, maybe a little bit more cynically, um, you know, the, the, the one thing that graduate school does on paper is that it allows you to teach in college. Mm-hmm. And what that really means is that it allows you to get in line with 400 other people to apply for, a, you know, any number of jobs. And so, um, you know, that's, that, that's not, uh, uh, that's not a terribly healthy prospect, uh, as, as people are finding out left and right these days. But I think another th- thing in a de facto sense that it does, um, and this completely depends on the school that you go to is that, um, it can help place you in the art world. It can be good for quote making connections, but that is really uh, dependent on the the school that you go to. If you go to uh, Columbia or if you go to Yale or if you go to Cal arts, um, you are much more likely um, to be, in a better position 
to negotiate with the art world when you leave than you would be if you went to uh, I'm not going to name anything but if you know if, if if you went to some regional MFA program in I don't know the Midwest or or, or you know some uh, a program that was that was not nearly um, uh, seen as having that the importance of the of the of those the programs I mentioned earlier or or, or the cloud and for better or for worse uh, I, I believe that's the um, that's that's the real story now in my case personally. Um, you know, by the time I went to grad school, I had been a photographer for three, at least three years, and I, I was on fire about it. I mean, and the the best thing about grad school, and I think that Joe Jockna knew this, was that I was left alone. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had to go to the seminars and all that kind of stuff, but um, he knew that I was entirely self-motivated and um, that there was <clears throat> that I was going to produce and that there was no, you know, that I needed very little guidance. And I, I was not aware of that consciously at that time. I mean, in retrospect, I was. But, you know, when I entered, um, I was off and running. And so graduate school for me was just like not being in graduate school. I mean, it was just like, you know, the, the years before. Um, I just did my work. And, and, and in fact, even though um, I got a free ride in graduate school, um, and the second year I did get paid as a TA as well, but um, the first year I had to get a job because, you know, even though I didn't have to pay tuition, I did have to, you know, live someplace and eat. Um, so it was just like, being in the real world, but you know, I had access to a darkroom. I had people to talk to, um, but I was just doing my work. There was, uh, it, it was a completely seamless transition and, um, it was, you know, it was not like, uh, the, the only thing that was new was that I had never lived in Chicago or actually any big city before. And, um, Fortunately, Chicago was a great town, and there was there was lots to see and lots to take pictures of. Did um, how did living in Chicago change your work? Well, that's interesting. I, I can say two things about it. First of all, well, I want to establish that my roots in photography are definitely on the street, um, and I got away from that for a while during from the late 1970s to probably the late 1980s where where the work I was doing was um, manipulated in one way or another Um, and I have no regrets about that work I think it was good work but um, I think in in middle age um, somehow I uh, I don't know, I, I I got a sniff of my mortality or whatever, and I, I started to go back on the street because I was very interested in making pictures where I could say I was there 
when I made this picture and these were the circumstances and it marked something in my life. But, um, the two things that, uh, I think influenced my work when I was in Chicago were, first of all, um, the painters and sculptors of Chicago. Now, I don't know if you know, but Chicago has its own, um, kind of school of art, which, uh, uh, I, I, I guess the, the formal name for it is, uh, they're called the Chicago Imagists. Um, uh, the, the informal name was the Harry who, uh, named after, uh, this guy named Harry Boris, who was a, um, an influential critic in Chicago in the, in the 1960s and seventies. But, um, artists like Roger Brown and Jim Nutt and Gladys Nielsen and HC Westerman, um, the, and Ed Paschke, um, their work combined surrealism with cartoons. That's, that's the only way I can put it. Hmm. And, um, it, it, it really hit a chord in me. Um, you know, I, I think that growing up outside of New York and my parents were, um, you know, they, they, they knew about culture and they knew about art. They were both teachers, um, and being dragged into New York every weekend, you know, to go to one museum or another, um, I, I did get an informal education and I do remember, you know, as a, a an eight or 10 year old kid, um, certainly the surrealist pictures struck me, um, more than, uh, the abstract expressionists or, you know, the social realists or, 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 or the cubists or whatever, because, they were so crazy. I mean, they were something that even an eight year old kid to re- could relate to. And, um, so I think it was from that, that kind of inner, uh, that kind of psychological life, um, was something that, uh, that the, that the Chicago painters, um, I don't know. They, the, the, their work resonated with me on that level, um, just in terms of a subconscious, you know, sort of Freudian thing. But it was also, it was also very funny and very, um, uh, it was just crazy. You know, it was, it was wacky. Um, and so that was an influence. And, um, also, uh, Jockna's work at the time, he was uh, working with sort of mirrors and lenses, uh, ancillary lenses, you know, like uh, uh, a magnifying glass or something like that. Um, I think that that had an influence on the work that I did for my graduate thesis as well. Um, and that work is um, self-portraits. Uh, and they are, um, very, uh, I guess, uh, they look like things in transition, you know, from being animal to human or male to female, or uh, I don't know what, but they, um, 
they're all pictures of me or parts of me. Um, all the uh, ma- manipulation is done in camera, so they're they're straight prints. But I, I think that those those two things, um, Joe's work and um, the the Chicago images painters, for the most part, were um, were my biggest influences. Do those influences, do you think they continue to resonate in the work that you're doing now? Yeah, not in the same way, though. I mean, I, I, I feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, describing my own work, um, as I think most, most people do. Sure. Uh, but I think that my work has always um i mean the reactions that i've gotten from my work uh have always or very often had to do with um humor um and its opposite you know some kind of uh, i'm not going to say horror right now but um some kind of biomorphic strangeness um some sort of visual paradox and and this this is even in the straight photography that I do and and in the straight photography that I did you know as a um as a college student you know before I started uh graduate school and so you know people often come up to me and say oh geez you know your work is so funny and uh and and that's funny in itself to me because they'll often add, you know, Carl, you know, I love your work. It's so funny. You you must have had a great time making it. I say, no, I didn't have a great time making it. It was very anxiety provoking. It was really hard to do. And you know, if if you're talking about pictures from the car, you know that 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 I that I took since since we're talking about this book. Um, I say, you know, you're 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 driving past people, and you're 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 taking their picture, and then you're moving on, and they're screaming at you, or, or you stop to take a picture, and you're trying to frame it a certain way, and you're con- you're contorting yourself in the in the front seat of the car, you know, you're you're kind of like upside down below the dashboard, and I, you know, no, it's it's not fun at all, you know, it's it's. <laughs> And, and, but that really enlightened me about something, which is that, um, I, I won't say this categorically, but, um, I, I do believe that you can make a case that, um, that humor and the need from, for humor, um, comes from pain. And, um, I think that if everybody was happy and fulfilled and satisfied and joy all the time, there would be no need for humor. I mean, if you, you just think about any comedian or comedy or, um, you know, from, from Shakespeare or from, from the Greek playwrights really to, to now, um, and look at the subject matter and look at how they're dealing with it. And there's a lot of pain and suffering in there. And that is, you know, the thing that's, that's, that works about humor is that 
it's a relief from that. It's a way of dealing with it. It's a way of looking at it and, um, and, and somehow being able to manage it, you know, without, without sort of going off the deep edge. I, I, I really believe that. And, um, you know, I, I mean, Lenny Bruce is an example that, that comes to mind immediately, um, as, as does uh, George Carlin or Richard Pryor. But if, if you see somebody's acts, you know, the, they're not about being happy. It's, it's, it's really quite, quite the opposite. Look at somebody like Louis C.K. these days, just to, to mention a contemporary comedian. Um, you know, his, his, his work... Uh, funny as it is, is is not about being happy. So anyway, I, I think that in a more philosophical and a more ontological sense, um, the root of humor is really in its opposite. So um, that's one thing. One story, a little story was I before I, I started teaching at BC. I was um, I taught taught up in Andover for a few years, two or three years, um, at the uh, Phillips Academy, which is this boarding school there. And um, I remember at that time, I had won um, one of the state, you know, fellowships or grants, and the local newspaper, um, the Andover Townsman or whatever it was, sent somebody to interview me. And she was pretty young and um she said well um what what describe your photography and i said well i don't know i i think that i i guess what i what i what i am looking for and and this has changed since then but i said i'm i'm trying to sort of strike a balance between humor and horror so the interview came out, and, uh, you know, if I had it here, I could actually quote it, but I'm going to have to paraphrase it. Um, the, in, the, in the interview, the quote came out was, I like to s- strike a balance between the horrible and the horrendous. And so <laughs> that was like, I couldn't say anything funnier than that. So, you know, so so anyway, uh, I, I think that, you know, as much as I can describe my work, um, I know that it's uh, it's seen as being funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, like many other photographers, especially those who who work out in the world, um, I respond to things that catch my eye. And uh, I think that in some cases, um, I know that I'm onto a project early on, or I will even predetermine a project. But um, in many cases, uh, like somebody like Lee Friedlander, um, I will be taking pictures and then I'll be looking at them and I'll say, hey, I've taken, you know, six pictures of this in the past week. Maybe that means something. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go back and look and see if I've done other things. And then you know, it, it will evolve into a project. I mean, most of the time I go out with that, without any real clear idea of, of what I'm, I'm looking for. I'm, I'm just looking for something that I haven't seen or that, that strikes me, 
uh, as, you know, interesting or odd or visually compelling or, you know, that resonates with me in a way that I, I can't even describe. Let's talk about your Instagram because it uh, seems like an important part of um, not necessarily the work that you're doing on a daily basis, but it looks it's your Instagram feed. It seems to be a way for you to look back at some of the the, yeah. the images you've taken, um, yeah. and your and your and, and mainly what I've seen there is images that you've taken and you took in the 1970s. Though they could extend 1975. Yeah, and okay, specifically that that time period. That year. What are you looking for in those images? What are you finding in those images? Perhaps is a better question, you know, with your, with, with all of the experience and all of the kind of visual education mm-hmm. that you've had in the last 40 something years, what are you finding in those images that you're putting on Instagram? That is a question that, you know, I can't give you a specific rote answer to. I think that, I think that part of the reason that I'm putting them is to see what's there um, and to, you, you know, I mean, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, the cliche is that, um, that the, the job of art is to, in part, is to raise questions and not give answers. And so I'm more interested in uh, the questions that the work uh, raises than, you know, in anything I can find specifically. I mean, if if I if I could put it in a nutshell, um, you know, I should I should tell you about this trip. But if I could put it in a nutshell, um, I mean, the trip that that uh, generated the photographs. But um, if I could sum it up, uh, you know, I think that I took m- more good pictures than I thought I did in 1975. And so it's interesting to me to revisit it on that level. And um, it's also, you know, being a photographer and being a photographer who, like I said, photographs out in the world, even, you know, even when I was doing uh, more conceptual or more manipulated work, I was still photographing, you know, and I was still making pictures on the street, you know, maybe sometimes less and maybe sometimes more, but, um, it's, it's important, I think in a personal way for me to see where I was and where I am now and the path between, um, those two points. And, um, it's, it's, it's a matter of, getting a certain kind of perspective. And, and, and this, um, Lorena is, is it's all very personal. I mean, I'm not doing it for a specific purpose that I know about, but it's to try and look back at my life and say, okay, well, this is what I did. And, oh yeah, I was thinking that then. And how could I have been thinking that? Or geez, I should have done this, that, or the other thing. Um, but it's and, – and I think it's also a way – and this is something that harkens back to social media itself. It's also a way of dealing with work that in another time 
uh, would have stayed in a box mm. until my demise, and then who knows what what would have happened to it. I mean, uh, most photographers, you know, when they, when they get to be middle-aged, they, they start thinking about what's going to happen to their work, and, um, you know, that there are all those stories about, um, you know, Bernice Abbott picking Eugene Ajay's work out of the trash. You know, I mean, here's here's the the father of modern photography, and his work was, you know, saved serendipitously. We 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 may never have seen it. You know, we may never had have seen Mike Disfarmer's work. You know, of course, the big craze now is Vivian Meyer. You know, you, you you think about it, and so why not put it out on social media? I mean, it's in in that sense, it's like a gift. I mean, uh, I I have I have a closet full of book projects and book mm. dummies, and um, you know, uh, I've been um, you know we 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 talked before the interview about flogging your wares, about promoting your work and stuff, and um. I, you know, if I, if I was better at it, I, I would have more books out than I have now. Um, and, uh, you know, my problem has always been, um, you know, finishing the project and trying to get it, um, published. I mean, I, I have, you know, a number of friends who, um, have self-published and I'm talking about, um, self-publishing in the 70s and the 80s, I mean, before Blurb and before all this stuff, who have self-published, you know, some some pretty important photography books. And I look at them and the things that they have to go through, you know, dragging their stuff from publisher to publisher, and I'm exhausted just watching them. And so, uh, you know, it's it's always been a little daunting for me. So, so the things that that have actually happened, the books that I have had published and, you know, have been, um, I, I guess, happy accidents or something, you know, people coming to me or I, I don't know, you know, for example, what happened with the with the Americans book that, uh, you know, it just took me completely by surprise. Uh, you know, I, I thought I'd print 50 copies and I'd, you know, give five of them or 12 of them to my friends and then I'd sell three and, and that would be it. Um, you know, it was, it was, th- th- there was no, I mean, there's always the hope of, you know, good things happening or, um, more people interested in what you're doing, but that wasn't the reason I did it. I did it because I, I needed to get it out of my system. Once I decided to do it, it was really, you know, it's like, okay, I've had this idea for a while. I'm going to do it now because I can't do the other thing. And I'm just going to like full steam just to get this sucker out of my system. And that's it. I won't have to deal with it anymore. Um, And really, that's what it was like, you know, just getting the pictures together. I knew exactly what I was going to do. And, you know, I mean, I didn't know which picture was going to be the best or whatever, but uh, you know, that, that was really it. But in terms of the 1975 pictures, you know, I, this was, I, because I, um, of this South America trip that I took, 
um, when, when I was a sophomore, uh, junior, I guess, I graduated a semester late. So I graduated in December of 1975. And on January 1st of 1975, a friend and I, you know, got in his car and we drove from upstate New York, you know, winding around the country. And we finally ended up at this other friend's um, in who was living in Berkeley, California, who was a, a colleague, uh, not a colleague, a classmate of mine, um, and was a photographer. And he had gone out the year before and he was living and working in Berkeley. And so the the guy who I went with initially, um, you know, we stopped at this other guy's place and then we drove down into Mexico and we drove down to the Baja. And our nominal reason for going there was, you know, there's um, about midway down the Baja, right where the the 28th parallel is or whatever it is. Um, there's a place called Scammon's Lagoon and the California gray whales migrate there every January to give birth. And um, so it's this phenomenon. And so that's, that's what our trip was about nominally. But for me, you know, it was about taking pictures also. And so we went down there and then the guy that I went out with, um, that I drove out with, he went back to the Northeast and I hitchhiked back up to Berkeley and this other friend of mine and I, you know, spent uh, another month or so living in Berkeley. And then we took his pickup truck, which had like a camper top. And the two of us and my dog spent six months or so just winding around the country and um, photographing. And I was not thinking about preserving the time. You know, I was not thinking about preserving the period. I was not thinking about anything except, you know, desperately trying to make a good picture now and again. And so um, that's, you know, that that's the, the nominal story of, of, of those pictures. And, you know, we came back and I think we got back in, I don't know, August of 75. And um, we went to Lightwork and we started printing them and we had a show, one show. And, um, it, you know, it was at that time it was the two of us together. And, um, this, this thing on Instagram and Facebook, or at least Facebook may still evolve into the two of us because we're still in touch. Um, and, and that was it. You know, um, the pictures went into a box, uh, and I think, I think I showed a couple of them, you know, now and again, and in one gallery or another, um, you know, somehow somebody saw something somewhere. I don't know. They were reproduced somewhere, but that was it back in that, in, in that time, you know, maybe my part of the show consisted of 20 photographs and, uh, I didn't think I had more than 20 photographs. And so now I'm looking at it again and it turns out that I do have more than 20 photographs. (laughs) I'd say you do. But what I'm doing, you know, it's, it's more obvious on Facebook than it is on Instagram. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to, um, put 
at first I, I put the pictures up randomly. So the first dozen or so are, you know, randomly. But then I realized that I needed to tell the story of the trip because mm-hmm. there were things that happened during the trip that were not photographed or could not be photographed. Um, and so I really had to, um, you know, remember the order and where we were when. And and so I guess that's helpful for me in a personal way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see people's reactions. And um, I, I don't think that, um, I mean, if, if the Getty wants to buy the whole collection, that, that might be fine with me. But, but, uh, but you know, that, that's aside from, a, you know, a, a sort of impossible dream uh, scenario like that. Uh, I, really, I'm just putting them out to, for, for my own um, recollection and for my own sense of continuity. And also, I, I suppose in some ways it's, you know, putting up the flag and see if, you know, if anybody salutes it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, I'm, I'm saluting them <laughs> as, as they go up. I think there it's, it's one of the, the, um, the bright spots of, of what I see on Instagram for sure. Well, it's, it's crazy because it's, you know, in terms of the trip, I mean, I'm only about 15% into it. Wow. I wow. mean, uh, in terms of the pictures that I'm posting, I've just gotten back from Mexico. And so we haven't even left, you know, in, uh, in the camper yet. So there's, 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 a lot there's more. much more to come, but there's more to come. Yeah. Well, um, I've taken a, a, a lot of your time today, and I want to ask one, actually two questions. Um, uh, the first one is, what are you working on now? It sounds like there's a lot of things that you're working on, but if there's something specific you want to highlight, um, I'd love to hear about okay. it. Um, well, first of all, uh, life is somehow much more complex than it used to be. And so in terms of photographing, I photograph whenever I can. And uh, actually, I just, uh, a couple weeks ago, I gave a talk on um, my photographs from the car at the Photographic Resource Center Mm -hmm. in Boston. And um, I said, I realized, I said, you know, I'm going to show you X number of hundred photographs. X hundred number of photographs and most of the pictures, 80% of them were taken driving from my house to Boston college and back or driving to whole foods (laughs) and back to shop Mm -hmm. or, you know, driving to New York to see my dad or something like that. And, you know, it's like I photograph when I can. And, um, so that's something that goes on all the time. Now, on top of that, in terms of specific projects, um, I have been, uh, I'm still working on car pictures. Um, I have been working on photographs about books and about the idea of how 
people see books these days. I mean, the physical book and how it's become more uh, fetishized and more of an more objectified and um, less about just something, you know, a bunch of letters between covers to read. Um, and, and that's also about our history, about collecting and things like that. And akin to that, um, there's actually another reference to the history of photography that um, I'm building up some, some pictures for, which is Andre Cortege um, in the 1960s did a book on um, reading, and it's called On Reading. And it was one of his more popular books, and you can still get it. It's, you know, maybe only 60 pictures or something like that. Um, and I like this idea of on reading because the idea, the notion, and the practice, the physical practice of reading has changed entirely. So um, that's kind of where I want to stop in terms of describing it. But I, I think that you can probably you know, fill in some of the details yourself in terms of like how people read until up to 10 years ago, mm -hmm. how people read today and mm -hmm. what they read and what it looks like and where they read. And so, um, there's a bunch of pictures for that project. Um, finally, uh, and, and I'm sure there's more work than this, but, um, Finally, one thing that's uh, on on a burner is um, it's about the nature of street photography, and which has become very problematic in recent times, um, as 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 you probably know. And that that I mean, my experience as somebody who had who started photographing, you know, in 1971 or 1972, you know, really not knowing much about photography um, at that time you know, my experience of just like walking out in the street or out in the neighborhood or downtown or whatever, and taking pictures of whatever caught my eye is a, was a very different experience than trying to do the same thing now. And now there is much more hostility and much more paranoia and much more um, fear and uncertainty. And the irony I find is that, you know, never in my experience, and I've talked to other photographers as well, so I, I, I feel fairly confident in saying this, um, has it been more difficult physically and psychologically to go out in the world, especially where there are people, and photograph and but it's it's not limited to people. I mean, if some if somebody if you photograph somebody's house or if you somebody photograph somebody's car and mm -hmm. they see you or somebody else sees you, I mean, there's always the suspicion. So there, the level of paranoia is unprecedented. You know, partially because of nine eleven, partially because of the internet, mm -hmm. partially and and social media, um, partially because of the media and the the way that they feed these ideas of terrorism and pedophilia and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But the irony is that in all this paranoia, we are on camera all the time. <laughs> and so 
I, you know, I did a project, and I, I may have briefly mentioned it before, you know, in, in Harvard Square for the past, for the three previous summers, you know, in in which um, I got screamed at, I got cursed at, I got shoved, I got beat up, um, and I was, you know, there was nothing that I was doing wrong, I was, everything that was perfectly legal, um, and in fact, I I would go there and I'd have a satchel with me, and in the satchel would be reviews of shows, announcements, um, my resume, letters uh, for, on you know BC stationery uh, saying who I was and who I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, I had to get a letter from the superintendent of Cambridge Police to you know to say leave this guy alone; he's legit. And even then. People would, you know, there there would be some guy who would say, "I don't give a shit what he said." You know, I'm, a, you're an asshole. You know, mm-hmm. and um, so uh, there's a project which um, codenamed "Everybody Loves a Photographer," and um, it's basically a compilation of stories and incidents and the documentation of those um, that have happened to me. Um, over the past 40 years and how things have changed. And, you know, you know about contemporary photography. I mean, I think that the, um, the, the, the way people are dealing with street photography now, um, at least the, the, the people that are in, in the public presence the most, I think are people like Doug Rickard and Mishka Henner who, will instead of going out on the street into the world, they'll go on Google street view mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, isolate frames from what they, from that records, um, new American photographs is, is probably the, the, the paradigm creator of this, where he would go into poor neighborhoods, you know, that, that, that the Google street view, um, car went through and, photograph you know make a screen grab and photograph it um and then make a print which i think conceptually has a lot of um value to it i mean the idea of putting this of of mediating uh another layer mm-hmm. you know another layer of mediation between the world and um and and, and the and the object of the print um, it's the camera through the camera or through the screen, through the camera, whatever. Um, you know, it's this meta infinite regression sort of thing. Um, and that becomes, you know, the new street photography and it's commenting on the old street photography. I mean, I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by it. I, I also think that, um, it's a little bit funny that, um, and, you know, I, I guess you're familiar with some of this work, but some of it is quite beautiful. Um, but it all reminds me of William Eggleston or Bill Christianberry or, you know, a certain style of photography that was established in the 1970s, if not earlier, that people like John Sarkowski um, promoted, which was based on the, um, uh, you know, the outsider photograph, the, um, 
the untutored mm-hmm. photo, the snapshot, you know, the snapshot aesthetic. And so literally, um, it was the, the, you know, when a Google, when a Google street view camera drives down your street and takes pictures, it's, it's like the snapshot. I mean, it, it has no, um, aesthetic purpose at all. It's, it's completely informational and just, just like those early photographs that, you know, people like Robert Frank or Friedlander or, uh, Diane Arbus or, um, uh, who's the other person I'm thinking of? Uh, uh, I can't remember, but, um, or Eggleston, you know, copied, they were, they were influenced by, by the vernacular. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's sort of come full circle, but, um, anyway, I, I feel like I need to make some kind of a statement about being out in the world and photographing and what happens because I get in trouble so much. <laughs> I, Carl, that's a discussion. We, we should have a, and um, off of this, uh, a separate discussion about that because oh, I, yeah. I certainly have, uh, I, I've, I have my own experiences with that, <clears throat> my own observations, and you know the ways that I've gotten around, um, tried to get around that because it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's something there's something important and very, you know, for photographers kind of of our ilk, you know, it's very important to be out in the world and uh, you know, kind of interacting on the street and you know having that type of spontaneous usage of the camera and response to what you see is, is really kind of an essential part of our practice, you know? Yeah. And and, and actually I think there's something else about it, which is that um, it's, it's protected first amendment free speech. Mm -hmm. And in, in, I mean, obviously I'm talking at a very, um, critical time, but, um, just to say for purposes of discussion right right now that, you know, we still live in a, in a democracy and we, you know, we have a constitution that allows us, you know, certain freedoms and to have those freedoms, you have to give up other kinds of things. So the balance is here between first amendment, right to free speech on the one hand and right to privacy on the other hand. And I think that wisely, um, the framers of the Constitution realized that you have to give up some of one to have the other, and you have to decide which one is more important in the larger sense. Mm -hmm. And clearly, um, the right to free speech, the right to free expression, trumps us. no pun intended, um, the right to privacy. I mean, mm-hmm. you have a right to privacy in your own place. And if you're in a public space, then you're in a public space. And, it, you know, the, the governments, uh, the nations that have uh, put the, have sacrificed the right to free speech, you know, usually become, uh, dictatorships of, of some mm-hmm. sort or another. And so I, I do think that, um, you know, I've thought it through to that degree, and that's also part of my uh, reasoning to people when 
I talk to them on the street mm-hmm. uh, to greater or lesser effect. <laughs> well, my final question is, where can people find your book, The Americans Buy Car, to purchase? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's It can be found um, by either emailing or messaging me. I have not, you know, I don't put it in stores. I, I don't make any attempt to um, uh, go through any kind of commercial venue. And in fact, um, so there were four printings. Um, there may be more. The first three printings sold out in two months. Wow. Uh, the fourth, the fourth printing um, is more than half sold out. It's, um, it was a printing that was initially made for institutions, for um, you know, museum collections, for libraries, for artist book collections, that sort of thing. And that is, you know, there are some left with that. And um, you know, I could do another printing. But um, right now, if one wants to get a book, um, uh, I would say that what I have right now is probably going to be gone within the next two months. And um, you just have to contact me. And, you know, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I have two email addresses. And um, I'm not hard to find. I mean, ironically, I do not have a website. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I do not have a website where I put up my photographs, mm-hmm. but um, uh, y- you can certainly find me on the web. You can contact my gallery. You could, you know. Well, what I'll do I- is accompanying this interview. There, there will I will have a, a link that will have uh, for people to have access to your email and your Instagram yeah. and other other ways that they can get in touch with you. Absolutely, sure. That would be great. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and, um, you know, you're going to have a hard time making me sound intelligent, I think, (laughs) but but I have faith in you, and um, um, I'm looking forward to the day that um, we we meet in person. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks very much. I hope hope that that uh, is in the near future as well. 